0: All right, gather around, cabbies, gather around. You guys are always complaining that you're bored, that there's nothing to do in this garage. Well, now you've got something to do. Allow me to present (laughs) Pac-Man. From Mother's Pinball of Mount Prospect, welcome to tonight's PM Magazine. Hi everybody, I'm Mike Lederman, and guess what? We're playing Pac-Man, the most popular game in the red hot video games industry. Now, Pac-Man isn't just a game you play, it's a crispy corn cereal that's coming your way. New Pac-Man. Video game fanatics from kids to businessmen are packing into the nation's arcades to play Pac-Man. It's the latest electronic toy. It's already more popular than Space Invaders or Missile Command. So if you're a Pac-Man addict, there's good news. Frank Casey spoke to a man who has found the secret of saving some of your quarters and conquering the game. multivitamins for no sugar pac mans better flintstones is over 70 percent sugar for no additives pac-man is better get, get the fruit it's more points get the, the i'm get not, the not gonna get the fruit get the fruit i can't, can't get the fruit get I'm the fruit get, you, you got, i'm not gonna get the fruit there's a ghost right there tracy did you hear fred dawkins the incredibly overweight guy that pac-man was based on died last night i will eat a bowl of cherries and some ghost meat in his honor June 27th, 2018. My friends, I figured now is the time I stop procrastinating. I had vowed that I would not even schedule an episode about Pac-Man collection until all of the pieces have been recorded and assembled. In true podcast procrastinator form, I went totally against that. I broke my own vow to myself. You know what? I scheduled the episode before everything was recorded. Lots of it was recorded, though. A lot of it was. But anyway, hi, everybody. It's Sean, or as the No Swear Gamer calls me, Janitor Sean. And this is episode number 39 of the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast, part one of this podcast's look at Bob Crescenzo's. Pac Man Collection Bang. Yeah, that's right. There's an exclamation point in the title of that cartridge. Those of you listening who are well versed in Pac Man Collection, have you been spelling it with the exclamation point? I have. Ha ha. Oh, I might sound uh, kind of weird. And here's why. um I'm not going to get into the details as to why, but. Uh, My dog has had, uh, in the past couple of days, a little bit of, uh, uh, let's just say, not niceness going on. She's getting, she's already much better, by the way, by the time I'm recording this. And uh, it was nothing serious, thankfully, but it did require that my wife and I had to get up in the middle of the night several times. And, uh, well, I, as I'm recording this introductory segment, just got home from work minutes ago. A nine and a half mile bike ride home from a full day of work after a nine and a half mile bike ride to work. The bike trail that I take to work was actually detoured and the new detour adds travel to the uh, route. So yeah, 19 mile round trip bike trip and a full day of work after getting maybe a grand total of half an hour sleep. So My brain isn't functioning right, so I might say things that don't make a lot of who So if any of that happens, then I offer my sincere apologies. Something I just want to mention here is, I knew Pac-Man collection was going to be a pretty huge undertaking that would require a lot of time to prepare. So I actually started working on it very, very early in the lifespan of the Atari 7800 homebrew podcast. So just to demonstrate how much time went into preparing this episode, every time I sat down to record, every segment that I recorded, I mentioned the date of the recording. So you're going to hear that frequently with a slightly different equalization. Well, no, vastly different equalization, actually. Just to show you how much time it took to research and investigate, and just plain sit down in front of a microphone and talk about this wonderful title. So in other news, well, I don't know what other news to say other than, hey, I'm here, and you know what? Heck with it. I'm just going to get right in to the topic of this episode. And by the way, I've gotten some questions. When do you want me to have my feedback about Pac-Man Collection to you? Well, I already have some feedback, but if you um, still want to get in, I would say Wednesday, July 11th by, let's say, 11.59 p.m. Central Daylight Time. But in the meantime, I'm going to shut up. Well, no, I'm not. I'm going to talk to you for a lot more, but I'm going to shut up about nothing in particular and focus on something in particular, and that pack. Man, collection. Not just the cartridge, and not just how the cartridge came to be about, but a little bit of the history behind the games that made it possible. So, take it away, Sean, from whatever day in the past the following segment was recorded. May 4th 2017. It would be a great disservice to talk anything Pac-Man, really, without getting a little bit of an insight into Namco, the company in Japan that gave us Pac-Man. Namco was founded by Masaya Nakamura in Tokyo in 1955, and at the time it was called Nakamura Manufacturing, And after some expansion and some reorganization, the company was renamed Nakamura Manufacturing Company in 1958. And that new name is what led to the more common short name Namco, and that's typically spelled all capital letters, by the way. But Namco's first releases were basically a bunch of children's rides. Like, you know those, like, um, if you go to a grocery store and sometimes outside the, uh, the store. Well, then again, I don't know if this is still a thing. I'm talking about when I was a little kid, at least, and outside the grocery store, there'd be those little coin-operated things. You'd sit on a horse or in a car and it would basically go back and forth for a couple of minutes. Well, that's the kind of thing that Namco did. The first ride that they released was a wooden horse kind of ride, and it was installed on the roof of a department store. And unfortunately, I wasn't able to ascertain which store. That was. And uh, another thing they had was what they called roadway ride. And what it was, there was basically a small track and a little car that a child would sit in, and basically the child would ride around the track on that little car. It's the kind of thing you see in malls nowadays, actually, from time to time. Now, I never knew this until I started prepping for this episode, but here's some interesting stuff that's pertinent to us Atari fans. In 1974, Atari Japan was having some financial problems, and its general manager, Hyde Nakajima, took over after the head of Atari Japan up and quit. Nakajima blamed Atari Japan's financial problems on employees stealing from the company, and he went on to say that he had to put up his own money to keep the company afloat. And Atari itself, as a whole company, was underfunded and was struggling to stay alive, so... Nolan Bushnell over at Atari headquarters put up Atari Japan for sale. Sega put in a bid for $50,000, but Nakamura put in a bid for $800,000. Yeah, that's right. eight hundred dollars for the failing Japanese branch of Atari and that amount was so high that other companies that were considering putting in a bid said, you know what, we're we're just going to back out now. And of course, Nolan Bushnell was all too happy to accept that bid. But by the time the sale was final, they negotiated the price down to about half a million dollars. Still, that's more than $50,000. But unfortunately, with that acquisition of Atari Japan, that means Nakamura also acquired Atari Japan's debts, and he spent two years paying those debts down. But that acquisition did lead to a distribution deal that allowed Namco to release Atari's games in Japan for 10 years. And also, Namco opened arcades in Japan whose games were primarily, if not exclusively, those Atari games. And anyway... Nakajima eventually became vice president of Namco in 1978 and he encouraged the company to open a division in the United States. So following that advice, that's exactly what Namco did. They opened Namco America and they put it right across the street from Atari's headquarters in Sunnyvale, California. And the purpose of Namco America was basically to get distributors to release Namco's video games. And as we know, Midway and Atari were frequently contracted to distribute those games. So that's a brief history about Namco and how they tie in to Atari. And of course, one of the games that Namco licensed to Midway for North American distribution is Pac-Man, which... Obviously you'll hear more about in a moment. But before we even get into that, this episode and possibly this entire podcast would never have existed had it not been for a particular contest that was held on Atari Age over a decade ago. October first, 2017. To talk about the development of Pac-Man Collection, we must go back to a time when there were, for all practical purposes, no Atari 7800 homebrews at all. And that goes back to October 26, 2004, when Atari Age user Shaggy the Atarian announced the 2004 2005 Atari 7800 Homebrewer Palooza contest. The announcement on his now defunct website, StaticGamer.com, had this to say The Atari 7800 is perhaps the most neglected of the Atari consoles for various reasons. It never had a strong following during its market days, and no one was able to release any new project for it until the encryption key was discovered about three years ago, which would have made it 2001 by the way. Yet even with that discovery, development has been scarce for the Pro system. With the 20th anniversary of the 7800, we feel that it is the 7800's turn for a line of great homebrew games to make the scene. We all know that due to Atari's own neglect that the system never reached its full potential, Perhaps one of you reading this will be the one to change our whole perspective on the 7800 and show us what it was made to do. So it's our pleasure to announce the first Atari 7800 Homebrew Development Contest. We hope that by the end of this contest that a new interest in 7800 development will be spawned. This will not be the only contest sponsored, but perhaps the first of several. This contest will involve any type of game you wish to create. An original game, a hack, a port, anything. Can you hack Centipede and Millipede? Make Double Dragon a better game? Is there another hack idea you've been wanting to try but the limitations of the 2600 and the 5200 have held you back? Been wanting to port your work on the 2600 or 5200 to something more powerful? Is there an original game idea that you'd love to bring to life on the 7800? The possibilities are many! If this will be your first experience programming on the 7800, we strongly encourage a hack and it will be taken into consideration if this is your first project on the 7800. Because of the current lack of 7800 tools, a grace period of one month will be given for anyone to work solely on the tools if they wish, or on learning about the 7800 itself. So that was the announcement made on StaticGamer.com. Originally, the rules limited the size of the game to 8K, but that rule was shortly relaxed and became as long as it can fit on a 7800 PCB, it's just fine. The contest was originally scheduled to begin on October 27th, 2004, the following day, and the deadline for entry was June 5th, 2005, with the winner to be announced on June 27th, 2005. The original sponsors of the contest were Age, Atari7800.com, JaguarSector2, and StaticGamer.com. Later on, Cousin Vinny's Atari 7800 Panoramic Fru-Fru joined as a sponsor, the prizes were to include a rare Vader-style ProLine joystick, and the winner would receive a cartridge copy of the winning game and have that title published by Atari Age. Another prize being discussed was perhaps winning an Atari 7800 high-score cartridge, but um, I was unable to determine whether that actually became part of the prize package. Eventually, a DVD of the documentary Once Upon Atari would be added to the prize package. Entries would be judged on gameplay, graphics, sound with emphasis on making the sounds better than most Atari 7800 games sounded, and of course originality, or if not original, then how faithful the game was to the original. The announcement on StaticGamer.com included links to several software tools to assist in development. So why am I mentioning this? Well, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you might remember my mentioning this contest in Episode 7 when I talked about Combat 1990, which came in second place in Homebrewer Palooza. There were other entries, including Beef Drop, Q-Bert, Tubes, Space War 7800, Robot Finds Kitten, and a homebrew version of Frogger. So, who came in first? Well, haha, <laughs> surprise, surprise, it was Bob DiCrescenzo, and it was his hack of the Atari 7800 Ms. Pac-Man converting it to Pac-Man. The announcement was made on Atari Age on June 28, 2005. Atari Age user Goochman was taken by surprise and wondered if he missed something. Bob's response Check the 7800 Hacks forum, where there would be binaries and screenshots for not only Pac Man, but also Pac Man Plus, Hangly Man, Ms. Pac Man, and Ultra Pac Man. What? A few more Atari Age users said they would be very nice as a multi cart. Bob's response Maybe sometime in the future. (laughs) But regardless of what the future might have held, the fact is, there was now a Pac-Man game on the 7800. (laughs) During the course of recording this episode, I realized how the Atari 7800 library had several sequels, but not the games that actually spawned those sequels. Even the Pac-In game, Pole Position 2, that was a sequel, but the 7800 didn't have its own version of Pole Position. Of course, you could play the 2600 pole position on it. 7800 had Galaga, but not Galaxian, and of course, in its original run, the 7800 had Ms. Pac-Man, but not Pac-Man. Hmm. Now that I think about it, even among the homebrews, the 7800 had several spiritual sequels without corresponding predecessors. Armor Attack 2, but not Armor Attack, Failsafe, but not Countermeasure, and of course, Bentley Bear's Crystal Quest, but not Crystal Castles. Not that I'm hinting to homebrew developers to retroactively program those games, but eh, well, let's get back on topic of uh, one that was actually fulfilled, well, kind of long ago now, and that, of course, would be Pac-Man. 2018. If you need an explanation of Pac-Man, then I welcome you to planet Earth. See that uh, weird, long, annoying tube stuck to your belly button? Well, one of those funny-looking people in lab coats will be removing that for you momentarily. Still, though, uh, there are a few things I should talk about. The person behind Pac-Man is Namco's Toru Iwatani. I talked about him in a little bit of detail in Episode 10, the Crazy Bricks episode. The official story is that Toru got the idea for the Pac-Man character when he was eating a pizza. The pizza had one slice missing, and it got him thinking. Now, again, that is the official story. It's plausible, perhaps even obvious. But the real story, well, so I heard. This is not official. But the story that I was told is the real story is that Pac-Man, and especially the flapping mouth, was Toru Iwatani's way of making fun of Americans who apparently stereotypically never shut up. They're always chattering away. And uh, you didn't see this, but I was making a little like blah, blah, blah motion with my hand. Uh, but anyway, uh, again, I don't know if that's really true, if that's the real story, but that's one version of it that I heard. But whatever the story is, in 1986, Toro Iwatani said that he based the character on the kanji representation of the Japanese word "kuchi," which means mouth. If you look at the Kanji Kuchi character, it looks like a square with legs on the left and right sides. The story is that Toru rounded the square and made the bottom horizontal line a little bit more angled, and that's how the famous Mouth like character was born. Toru Iwatani and his nine-person team they started working on the game in April 1979. Of course, many people know that the game was called Puck Man, or Puckman, I guess. Uh, I don't, there, Some versions of it have a, sp- have a space in there, some don't, but whatever. But uh, that's what it was called when it was released in Japan in May of 1980. If you go by the not-translated Japanese title, it was spelled P-A-K-K-U, man. I'm guessing the pronunciation is Pac-Man, uh, because Japanese has silent U's in it sometimes. But uh, regardless, the name comes from a Japanese phrase... I'm approximating the pronunciation here because I don't speak Japanese, but I think the phrase is pak-pak-tibir, and the pak-pak spelled P-A-K-U, P-A-K-U, that part doesn't really mean anything in particular, but it's meant to be an onomatopoeic description of opening and closing your mouth in rapid succession. And tibir, I'm guessing on the pronunciation, T-I-B-E-R-U, means Eat. Here's a quote from Toru Iwatani about the Puckman character. Puckman's character is difficult to explain even to the Japanese. He's an innocent character. He hasn't been educated to discern between good and evil. He acts more like a small child than a grown-up person. Think of him as a child learning in the course of his daily activities. If someone tells him guns are evil, he would be the type to rush out and eat guns. But he would most probably eat any gun, even the pistols of policemen who need them. So that's what Toru had to say, and of course, Puckman had four enemies, and they were monsters of different color who were each identified by both character and nickname, and by the way, they were monsters, not ghosts. And I'm going to possibly be butchering some Japanese words, and I apologize to anybody who's Japanese or speaks Japanese, Uh, but the red monster was Oikake, which in English means to pursue, and his nickname was Akabei, which is roughly uh, red guy in English, The pink monster was Machibuse, which in English means ambush, and his nickname was Pinky. The light blue monster was named Kimagure, or capricious as we'd say in English, and his nickname is Aosuke, meaning roughly blue guy. And then the orange monster was Otoboke, or feigned ignorance, and his nickname was Gazuta, which means slow guy or one who lags behind. Naturally, we all know that by the time Puckman was released worldwide, it was renamed Pac-Man. The monsters, at least in North America, were renamed Shadow, Speedy, Bashful, and Pokey, or Blinky, Pinky, Inky, and Clyde, respectively. And rather than go over the details of the game, because we all know the details, right? I'd rather talk about some of the more interesting things about Pac-Man. For me personally, the kill screen is the most fascinating part of all the Pac-Man lore, really. Now, this part of the Pac Man discussion will be on the assumption that a lot of you might not be familiar with kill screens in general. A kill screen is called a kill screen because, well, it kills your character in the game or in some other way your game ends. Donkey Kong has a famous kill screen. Anybody wants to see there's a Donkey Kong kill screen coming up? In which uh, the bonus timer doesn't work properly and you end up losing the rest of your lives because of that the Activision Decathlon, and the Atari 2600, if you do well enough in the pole vault event, you'll get to a point in which the pole you're vaulting over literally auto-generates and grows under you when you fly over it. And after a few rounds of that, your character just suddenly starts floating across the screen over and over and over until you either reset the console or turn it off. I discovered that kill screen on my own, by the way, (laughs) many years ago. But Pac-Man has perhaps the most famous kill screen in video game history. Now, The Pac-Man kill screen happens after you clear the 255th maze. And uh, that number 255, that's kind of a magic number with old video games because the hardware can only count up to 255. And when you add 1 to that, the counter resets to 0. And a big problem is that many programmers back then never accounted for the 0th of whatever. Sometimes 128 is the maximum. A good example, by the way, of the 127 maximum is uh, Nibbler. In the game Nibbler, you can earn as many extra lives as you want, but once the life counter reaches 128, the game comes to an end because the life counter resets to zero, makes the game think you have no lives. But what happens in Pac-Man is that the first level, or as they call it in programming, rack. The first rack is actually programmed as level 1 instead of level 0. Rack 2 is programmed as level 2, etc., etc. So 255 is the highest number that the level counter can maintain, though. So if you last 255 levels and manage to clear the 255th level, the rack counter, the level counter resets to 0. And because Iwatani's team didn't account for a level 0, the hardware didn't know what the heck to do. So here's what happens when you do clear that 255th maze. At the bottom of the screen, as you know, it tells you which level you are on by indicating the level's corresponding bonus prizes. For example, if you're on the second level, you'll see from right to left a pair of cherries and a strawberry. And the leftmost bonus item is the indicator of the present level. The level indicator can only handle seven bonus items, so you'll only get a representation of the last seven levels that you've seen. Of course, by the time you get to level 255, the last couple of hundred levels were all key levels, so you'll just see seven keys at the bottom of the screen. But anyway, the routine that draws those bonus items for the level indicator actually uses the level counter to determine how many bonus items it should draw. For example, if you're on level 5, the drawing routine's going to say, hey, you know what? I need to draw the last four levels worth of bonus items plus the current one. After level 7, the drawing routine consistently calculates 7 from the level counter, but when the level counter resets to 0, suddenly it gets the idea that it should draw 256 bonus items at the bottom of the screen, and that's exactly what it tries to do. It tries to draw 256 bonus items in a space allocated for 7. As a result, the drawing spills outside of that space that can only handle 7 items, really. And then it overflows so that the right half of the screen goes completely haywire. So the 256 level in Pac-Man is sometimes called the split screen, because the left side of the screen is fully intact and playable, but the right side is a scrambled mess and not so playable. There's no rhyme or reason to how Pac-Man and the monsters move on the right side of the split screen. The right side also has 9 dots, some of which are invisible that you actually can eat. If you lose a life at this point and have any lives left, the dots that you've eaten actually regenerate so you can eat them again. Now on a standard, unmodified Pac-Man arcade machine, it is impossible to get past the 256 screen, ergo it is considered a kill screen. In the early 80s, there was a belief among some people that you could get past the 256 screen by having the number 256 in your score somewhere, like 3,256,420 or something like that, but that was actually proven to not be true. The only way you could get past the 256 screen was to access the dip switches on the uh on the arcade board and flip the Rack Test Advancer switch over, which would auto-advance the game to the next level. The 257th level would essentially be level 1, except it would maintain the current difficulty settings. Like, you wouldn't be able to eat the monsters, but the bonus prize would be back at the cherry. But the thing is though, the belief that you could somehow get past that kill screen without using the Rack Test, that belief just wouldn't die. So, there's a guy named Billy Mitchell. Many of you have probably heard of him recently. He's credited with getting the first perfect Pac-Man, although many, many, many people dispute that. They think there are a lot of people who did it before he did. Uh, I once knew the name of the guy who supposedly first did it. Unfortunately, I, his name escapes me. If I can remember it, I will definitely mention it. In 1999, Billy offered $10,000 of his own money to anybody who could prove that it is possible to get past that screen without cheating. And the deadline was the year 2000, basically. Nobody was able to win the money. Having said that, though, on July 25, 2015, Twin Galaxies held the Pac-Man Kill Screen Challenge. That happened in North Hollywood, California, and uh, that event brought in some hardcore gamers to find a way to get past the kill screen. Tim Balderamos ended up finding a way, but there's a catch he found that you need to be playing a Pac-Man machine that would have the continue option. Specifically, that would be the 25th anniversary Pac-Man machine, which has not only Pac-Man, but also Ms. Pac-Man and Galaga. The way the programming in Pac-Man advances to the next level is that it counts how many dots you've eaten, including energizers. And once that dot counter reaches 244, that sets off the little routine in the program that says, hey, the maze is finished, flash the screen, advance the level. So basically you need to play one of those Pac-Man 25th anniversary cabinets and keep using the continue option until you get enough of the regenerated dots on the 256 screen to bring that dot counter up to 244. So yeah, technically it's possible to play past the kill screen, but there's a big asterisk on that anyway, because Pac-Man has a kill screen and because there wasn't really a lot of randomness in the game, there is a maximum score you can reach. The highest possible score you could get on the arcade version is 3,333,360 and that would require that you roll the score over three times because the score indicator can only handle up to 999,990. To get that maximum score that I just said, you have to adjust the dip switches on the motherboard so that you're allowed 5 lives plus a bonus life. If the dip switches are set to factory default though, 3 lives plus a bonus, then the highest possible score would be 3,333,180. To get a perfect game, you have to eat every dot, Grab every bonus prize and eat every monster every single time you get an energizer in the levels in which you can actually eat the monsters. And you cannot lose a life until you've done all of that and eaten all the nine dots on the right side of the split screen. And on your following lives, you have to eat the regenerated nine dots on the right half of the split screen. Now, interestingly, I mentioned before that Billy Mitchell was the first person on record officially, apparently, to have gotten the perfect game, and I think that was with the five lives plus bonus life setting. And what's interesting about that, whether or not Billy actually was the first person to get a perfect game, of the perfect games that were ever on record, his was actually the slowest, because now, now that many people have achieved a perfect game... The big thing to do now with Pac-Man is to get the perfect game in the fastest possible time. Last time I checked Twin Galaxies, David Race is the record holder of the fastest perfect game, which he did on June 22nd, 2013 in three hours, 28 minutes, 49 seconds. And the machine was set to start at five lives and an extra life at 10,000 points. Um, What's interesting, though, is at least as of the time of this recording, Twin Galaxies doesn't track Pac-Man with its default settings at all. Um, I just better shut up at this point about that. (laughs) But anyway, because Pac-Man has a kill screen, does that mean that other games that are essentially hacks of Pac-Man also have kill screen? Oh, absolutely. Ms. Pac-Man, for example, that has the same 256-level problem. Or it would if you happened to make it that far because the Ms. Pac-Man programming actually introduced other kill screens. Because of the way Ms. Pac-Man was done, there are kill screens much earlier. Uh, there's one, for example, roughly 140 levels in. Depending on how things line up, one possible kill screen you'll get is that the maze renders upside down graphically, but plays normally, that is, uh, Ms. Pac-Man and the Monsters follow the path as if the maze rendered properly. Another possible kill screen is that the maze and the dots don't render at all, meaning that Ms. Pac-Man and the Monsters just move around an open play field, and actually Jr. Pac-Man has that same kill screen. And of course, since there are no dots to clear, that means the level cannot possibly advance. There's yet another kill screen that I actually found out about the hard way when I was going for a personal high score on the turbo version of Ms. Pac-Man. And uh, I'll talk more about that later, of course. Depending on various circumstances, at some point in the game, the machine will actually reboot in the middle of the game. Now, I thought that the machine glitched out when I was playing it. After all, the machine was probably about 33 years old at the time. But somebody told me, oh, don't th- I don't think it was a glitch, and gave me a link to uh, an explanation that it was a possible kill screen, given how far I was in the game. My score was about 760,000 points, and I had been about two hours into the game, give or take. And, uh, of course, if I can find uh, that link that uh, I was shown, I will absolutely put it in the show notes. Pac-Man Plus, by the way, also would have the split-screen issue, but given that it starts at a later level, um, again, more about that later, the split-screen happens a little bit earlier in Pac-Man Plus. The 256th level in Pac-Man is so legendary that Namco actually opened a restaurant and gaming complex called Level 257. Why did they call it Level 257? Well, it's because they wanted to evoke that magical, mythical level that you would see if you could achieve the impossible by playing past the famous split screen. Level 257 is at the Woodfield Mall in Schaumburg, Illinois, probably about half an hour northwest of Chicago. And obviously the place is Pac-Man themed. There's a gift shop near the entrance that has all kinds of licensed Pac-Man merchandise. Uh, The restaurant itself is very hipster friendly. It's a bit pricey, but the food actually is pretty good for what you pay. There are two expensive bowling alleys over there as well. And when I was there, it cost $40 per lane. That's pretty expensive, but there was no limit as to how many players you could have in a single lane. Uh, I think prices have gone down since, but uh, they also had an exhibit of early 80s gaming memorabilia. Um, One thing I saw was the uh, Light Sixer. Um, I don't remember what else there was. I got some pictures of it. I'll have to uh, post a link to the pictures in the show notes. Uh, There was a reading nook that was obviously targeted toward kids, and, of course, there is an arcade. At the time I was there, the games in the arcade were operated by a time card. You would pay a certain amount per 15-minute unit of time, and once you activated your card by playing a game, your time would start counting down, and your credits were good for that amount of time. I think they have changed that payment technique since I was there, but I can't say for sure. Uh, But what I did find interesting about the arcade was that even though the place is owned by Namco... It has both Namco and non-Namco games, like there are Centipede, Tempest, Joust, and even a baby Pac-Man, one of the unauthorized Pac-Man sequels that Midway made without Namco's input. In fact, uh, that was one of the reasons Namco wouldn't allow Midway to distribute Pac-Mania. Speaking of licensed Pac-Man merchandise, uh, yeah, when Pac-Man was a thing, there was merchandising all over the place. Uh, Personally, I've had a Pac-Man drinking mug, Pac-Man notebook, Pac-Man Halloween costume, one of those cheapy things that's uh, just a mask and a uh, plastic uh, uh, pants and shirt, I guess. It just had Pac-Man decorated all over it. Uh, I had Pac-Man bubblegum cards, Pac-Man scratch-off game cards, Uh, Not lottery tickets, just regular game cards. Uh, Of course, I had Pac-Man in the 2600. I had a Pac-Man lunchbox, the Pac-Man board game. And uh, when the ice cream truck came by, I would run out and get the Pac-Man lemon-flavored ice cream thing. Well, you get the point. Um, This little bit about one piece of Pac-Man memorabilia was recorded on June 27th, 2018. So you get the point. There was a ton of Pac-Man memorabilia, collectibilia, whatever there's one little item though that i had that i want to talk about and i'm actually holding it in my hand right now and it, it is a uh, a book it's a spiral bound book by the editors of consumer guide pac mania top strategies for home and arcade pac man this came out in uh, 1982 my mom was out shopping one day and i guess she picked this up for me and just tossed it over to me she's here i got something for you and i was like oh really cool And this is a little bit of a misleading title. It's a lot more than strategies for home and arcade Pac-Man. Really, um, when this book came out in 1982, it covered in 64 pages just about everything at the time that there was to know about Pac-Man. Just to give you an idea of uh, when roughly this book was put together... Ms. Pac Man had just been released not terribly long before, and there's also a little bit about the Mr. and Mrs. Pac Man pinball machine. I'm flipping through the book right now, and I see political cartoons making fun of Pac Man. Like there's a game called Tax Man with uh, Pac Man, an evil looking Pac Man, chasing a guy, and Pac Man has the letters IRS on him, and uh, he's eating. Little piece of paper with dollar signs on them. Uh, there is another one of somebody who's obviously supposed to be Ronald Reagan standing in front of a arcade video game machine called Budget Fever with a Pac Man and a dollar sign on it. And he's turned around and he says, Quick, give me another bag of quarters. And also, there are some cartoons from comic strips, including Doonesbury and Kathy and Funky Winkerbean. Remember Funky Winkerbean? That uh, involved Pac Man somehow. There are pictures from Pac Man Day events, including one from uh, Woodfield Mall, (laughs) which I don't remember when I record, I don't remember which segment I mentioned it before, but you either have heard or will hear about that again in this episode. (laughs) There's a page of Pac Man trivia questions. There is an article called Pac Man and the Law, which talks about uh, Casey Munchkin and Atari and all that. And speaking of Atari, There are actually strategies for the Atari 2600 Pac-Man in here, including some maze patterns. Uh, There are maze patterns for the arcade Pac-Man as well, but to be honest, I don't think I ever really tried them, so I can't really talk about their uh, efficacy. And there are also maze patterns in here for the Coleco Tabletop Pac-Man. See, there are write-ups about other home games, such as the uh, Tomitronics Pac-Man. Those of you here in the United States, you might remember that. that. That thing was all over the place Uh, it's a little round yellow thing with an lcd screen Uh, there's n texas pac-man 2 which was only around for a short time i i think due to legalities but the article here says some really nice things about that Uh, the milton bradley board game pac-man clothing you name it well at least anything that was nameable from 1982 and it is in here lyrics to pac-man fever this is seriously of all the pac-man books that i've seen this is my favorite one uh, I will put some kind of link in the show notes to it, whether it be available for sale on Amazon or eBay or whatever. Sorry about that noise. Something fell off my desk. But um, the copy that my mother gave me, that thing is falling apart. Is In fact, I might have tossed it um, not long ago, but it was falling apart, pages falling out of it, pages just plain missing. So a couple of years ago, two or three years ago, maybe longer ago than that, actually, I went online to find a copy. I checked eBay first, and there was a really nice-looking copy. Somebody was asking 60 bucks for it. I was almost ready to uh, buy it now, but then something told me, hey, check Amazon. So I did. And Amazon had one in really good condition for $10. So guess where I ordered my copy from? So I now have a fully intact Pac-Mania book from the editors of Consumer Guide. And something really cool was... Uh, There was also, um, it looks, there are two pages here from what looks like a video game guide put out by Playboy of all publications. Somebody stuck in here. Um, Unfortunately, none of the good stuff uh, from Playboy. It's just uh, video game strategies. Uh, There are some illustrations, some hand-drawn illustrations, it looks like, from the ColecoVision Donkey Kong. But something interesting in these pages that somebody stuffed in this book there's a little inset titled Arcade Action, Scores to Beat. And uh, I see, I see um, a couple of familiar names. I see Joel West with a score of 68,300 in the Fast Bullets version of Berserk, uh, which he achieved at Station Break Arcade in Hickory, North Carolina. Uh, Steve Sanders with a uh, 1.45 million score in Donkey Kong, at uh, scored at Meadowlark Lanes in Clinton, Missouri. Um, Actually, those are the only two names that I recognize now that I think about it. But here's something interesting. Obviously, it lists Pac-Man. The person listed here with the high score, his name is Ken French, and he was playing it at Space Station 7 in Highland, California. The score listed here is 5,971,440. 5,971,440. Uh, Ken French, if you're listening to this, please reach out to me, homebrew78 at fab4it.com, or look for me on Facebook. We have a Facebook uh, page, uh, Atariage, atari.io, username Dauber. Reach out to me, tell me exactly how you managed to get past the split screen to uh, get this alleged 5.97 million score. But hey, I love this book. I highly recommend it. If you happen across a copy of it and you like Pac Man at all, pick it up. It is a page turner. You will not be able to put it down. Uh, even after I practically memorized this thing, I still kept picking it up and looking through it. So, <sighs> very, very excellent book. There's oh, there's also a little. Uh, there's also a little two page spread about bootleg counterfeit pirate arcade games and there is a screenshot of hangley man and hit uh, but it was a fascinating read as well but check it out uh, again this wasn't terribly deep into the pac-man series as uh, there are only two pac-man arcade video games out and a pinball machine at the time this book came out but it's a really excellent read if anybody who worked for consumer guide at the time is listening to this uh You did a wonderful job. Oh, I just now noticed here, uh, the publisher publications, international limited 3841 West Oakton street, Skokie, Illinois, six zero zero seven six. That's not far from me. I live on the far North side of Chicago and Skokie is just a couple of towns away. In fact, I'm going to see if I can find out what is at that address right now. Uh, hold on a sec. Okay. It looks like at, well, actually, um, Skokie doesn't use the, uh, West, North, South, East designations on their street. So it's just 3841 Oakton. It is an art supply store called Buzzline, B-U-Z-L-I-N-E. But yeah, it's really interesting finding out what happened with, uh, Things from the past that uh, you're getting into. But uh, hey, that is uh, Pac Mania. And so ends this little insert that was recorded on June 27th. And hey, while I'm on the topic of the seemingly endless merchandising of Pac Man, hey, let's talk about one specific piece of Pac Man memorabilia that you could get at your local record store. Discussion of Pac-Man would not be complete without discussing Buckner and Garcia's song Pac-Man Fever, which was released on Columbia Records in December 1981. The song reached number 9 on the Billboard charts, and it sold over a million copies. The single spawned Buckner and Garcia's Pac-Man Fever album, released also on Columbia Records in January 1982. That is fast! That is fast, given that that album was basically done in response to the success of the one Pac-Man Fever song. The album contained the title track and eight other video game-related songs, many of which had sound effects from the actual arcade games. The inner sleeve of the album included a few Pac-Man maze patterns. Uh, to this day, I haven't tried those patterns, though, so I cannot attest to their efficacy. Of course, because I am who I am, um, I had the Pac-Man Fever album back in the early 80s, and in fact, I think there's a picture of me opening it on my birthday. Uh, If I find that picture, uh, you'll know I'll put that in the show notes. Naturally, I played the heck out of that album. A few years ago, I listened to the album for the first time in over 30 years, and I gotta tell you, the lyrics are embarrassingly cheesy. But you know what, though? The music is really, really good. It really is. The instrumentation is really solid, especially for that time. I mean, one thing I didn't like about 80s music was that so much of it was so synthesizer-laden and electronic drums. Uh, the Pac-Man Fever album, it's mostly pretty organic music, actually, and it is, it is good quality. Uh, the melodies are pretty catchy, and uh, I came up with a theory. I have not been able to verify this, but my theory is that Buckner and Garcia recorded the Pac-Man Fever song to get a hit song from the Pac-Man craze, which I believe they admitted, I believe Buckner and Garcia admitted, I think they were jingle writers at the time, actually. But my theory is that they recorded the song Pac-Man Fever, and then they went back into the studio to record just a regular, normal, mainstream album. Furthermore, my theory is that Columbia Records, upon seeing the success of Pac-Man Fever, the song, that is, had Buckner and Garcia make an entire album of video game-themed songs to further cash in on the video game craze. And, of course, my theory is that following Columbia's requests, or demands as it were, they rewrote the lyrics to the normal songs they were working on so that they would be about video games. I did ask Jerry Buckner about this over Facebook once. He's usually pretty responsive, but he never answered that question, though. As for Gary Garcia, in case you didn't know, unfortunately, he died about seven years ago of uh, undisclosed causes. His family and friends aren't saying what caused his death, but hey, he's not with us anymore, sadly, and I guess that's the important thing. But um, Oh, by the way, if you buy Pac-Man Fever on CD or download it from Amazon or iTunes or whatever else you have, you're not getting the original Pac-Man Fever. For whatever reason, Buckner and Garcia were not allowed to access the masters for the album. So when it came time to reissue the album digitally, um, by the way, I count CD as a digital format, they actually had to re-record the album from scratch. But I had to mention that because, hey, I love music, music is really a bigger part of my life than video games are, so I had to go on that little aside right there. And also because Pac-Man fever is among my Pac-Man memories, and I might as well get into how I got into Pac-Man. Pac-Man just gives me this feeling of giddiness, like there's all these tingles running up and down my nipples. I had heard some buzz about Pac-Man when the game first came out, but all I knew about it was just that, just some buzz. I remember hearing mentions of it, but no idea what the gameplay was, what the characters were, just nothing, really. I just knew that it was an arcade game that people liked. My brother mentioned that they had it at the Le Mans Speedway at Lincoln Mall, the place about 30 miles away from home where we'd go shopping once a month in Matson, Illinois. And of course, Le Mans Speedway became Bally's Aladdin's Castle. But anyway, my first experience with Pac-Man happened on President's Day weekend 1982. I believe it was actually Lincoln's birthday. I was in the second grade, and for whatever reason... My brother, my parents, and I, we spent the weekend at the Holiday Inn in Bradley, Illinois, just a few miles south of our A home. And it had that old flashy Holiday Inn sign um, on the outside, kind of like the one you see in the movie The Blues Brothers. One little detail I remember was that I brought my speak and spell with me. I I always was a nerd. And I had that, and it's Power Adapter stored in a dresser drawer in the hotel room. (laughs) But anyway, we spent a lot of time at the hotel pool, which was a lot of fun. We also spent a lot of time in the hotel game room. Even my mom and dad, they're not gaming people at all. I seem to remember we spent a lot of time playing pool, and I'm pretty sure there was a pinball machine, maybe two pinball machines in the game room. But back then, to me, a pinball machine was a pinball machine. They were all the same to me. Well, let's just say during my entire childhood, probably until I was in college. To me, I wouldn't have known the difference between Pinbot and, say, Haunted House. But regardless, um, there were several video games in that game room. Not a heck of a lot, just a small handful, maybe five or six. Uh, I remember there was some kind of motorcycle racing game, but I didn't play it. I only remember the control panel was handlebars. But they definitely had Space Invaders. In fact, that was when I learned that there was an arcade Space Invaders. Previously, i had only played it on my cousin's Atari 2600, and to this day... The 2600 version is my favorite version of Space Invaders, and yes, that includes the arcade version and the Bob D. Crescenzo 7800 version. Sorry, Bob. The Holiday Inn game room is where I first saw Donkey Kong, too, which I'd never even heard of before then. But the game didn't really interest me. I didn't play it at all. All I could think of when I watched people play it was wait, this is called Donkey Kong? Uh, Where are the donkeys? And of course, the game room had Pac-Man. <laughs> Wouldn't it have been a riot if I had gone on for this long, only for it to not have anything to do with Pac-Man? I, I digress. But yeah, they had Pac-Man, the game I had heard of but never actually saw. I watched some people play it, and I watched the attract screen, and I was intrigued. I had to play it. And every time I did play it, I repeated the exact same thing. Start the game and head straight to the monsters in hopes of eating one of them. Of course, that didn't work. I'd end up losing a life every time. And I couldn't quite figure out what the heck I was doing wrong. Of course, my parents didn't know what to tell me. I have no idea why I didn't get any advice from my brother. Either I didn't ask him or he was just being a jerk of a big brother. I don't know. Chances are, he didn't know I was struggling. He was probably off playing another game or something. But my intrigue stayed with me after that holiday weekend ended. At school, I'd talk to my classmates about how I played Pac-Man for the first time... And, uh, sucked. (laughs) Why couldn't I eat those colored critters who are in the maze? Oh, you have to eat one of those big dots first. Oh, that explained it. But I just can't do justice to explain the angst I felt wanting to try out this newfound wisdom, eating a big blinking dot to be able to eat the monsters. I wanted to try it so badly, but the Holiday Inn was the only place locally I knew of that had Pac-Man and no way was I going to think of asking my parents to take me there just so I could play a game. So I'd have to wait until our next trip to the Lincoln Mall, which was still a ways away. Then one day, my brother told me that the Kroger in town had acquired a Pac-Man machine. Whoa! (laughs) Kroger always had two video games near the entrance. The first that I remember were Crazy Kong, which of course I later found out was a semi-quasi-pseudo-legal Donkey Kong knockoff and a deep-scan-slash-head-on-two, two-in-one Sega cabinet, which I believe I talked about in a prior episode. But wow, Kroger now had a Pac-Man. It was an odd Pac-Man machine. The cabinet was plain, and the sign was, for all intents and purposes, hand-drawn. But I didn't care. It was still Pac-Man. From all other appearances and gameplay, it was the real thing. It may have been a custom cabinet, or more likely a counterfeit It was rare that I could con my parents out of a quarter so I could play, but man did I try. Sometimes successfully, but usually not. I tried my newfound strategy, but I still sucked. Oh well, at least I had fun trying. But that was the beginning of Pac-Man fever for me. Anytime I'd be out and there was a Pac-Man machine, whether it be at the Kroger or the A&P, or even one time there was a parish festival at my church and they rented a Pac-Man cabaret cabinet for the event and had it in the lobby of my school... I went to the parish's Catholic school. I needed to play it. Whether it was Pac-Man or Ms. Pac-Man, I had to play it. Or at least make a lot of noise trying. That's how I got into Pac-Man, and I'm still a Pac-Maniac to this day. And it goes without saying that Pac-Man was ported to so many home versions and was cloned many times over. Wait, so if it goes without saying, why did I say it? Uh, Anyway, uh, one console from which it was glaringly absent, though, was one that actually had a Ms. Pac-Man, and that'd be the Atari 7800. A gentleman by the name of Bob DiCrescenzo sought to remedy that problem. October 29th, 2017. Bob first started going into detail about Pac-Man on May 3rd, 2005, when he posted on Atariage that he was hacking the official 7800 version of Ms. Pac-Man into Pac-Man. If this one gets too hard, I reserve the right to abandon, smiley face, he said. He included a screen capture of what he had done so far. At this point, it was simply a Ms. Pac-Man maze redesigned as the Pac-Man maze, The maze walls at this point retained their pink outline color while the inner parts were now black, unlike with Ms. Pac-Man. In fact, Bob found out eventually that in the arcade game Pac-Man, it's not that the maze walls are outlined in blue. They're actually filled in with black. It's not the background color. Anyway, the maze redesign was one of only two changes done so far. The other change was that the dots were now blue and the Ms. Pac-Man character was still left intact. On May 6, Bob posted an update. The maze color had changed now, and he made the first maze the only maze in the game. He altered Blinky's and Pinky's behavior so they go straight to their designated corners of the maze instead of moving randomly. The bonus prize now no longer moved. It stayed stationary under the monster's pen. However, Bob was having difficulty trying to figure out how to make the bonus prize disappear after a certain amount of elapsed time, as he had no 7800 programming experience with timers, so he asked if anybody could help him out with that. Early the next morning, Bob posted another update and a screen cap. He had figured out the previously mentioned timing issues so that the bonus prize would now disappear if Pac-Man didn't eat it in time. Well, I should say Ms. Pac-Man, because Ms. Pac-Man was still the star of the game at this point. Changing Ms. Pac-Man into Pac-Man was specifically itemized on his to-do list, along with changing Blinky to a solid red. He's actually hot pink on the official 7800 Ms. Pac-Man, most likely because on a cathode ray tube screen such as a TV set from back then, red would tend to bleed. Something I learned in my TV class in college, by the way. Also on the to-do list was to add all of the bonus prizes, bring disperse mode into the game, redo the sounds, rework the intermissions, redesign the death animation, and alter the intro screen so that the wording is correct for Pac-Man. 25 hours later, Bob had announced that he changed the graphics as he had planned and updated the scoring to be accurate to that of Pac-Man. The remaining bonus prizes were added as well, but Bob was having trouble getting them to display properly at the bottom of the screen. He was also having issues with the monsters' behavior above their pen and Pac-Man's starting spot. That issue with the monsters was still there when Bob posted the first playable work in progress on May 10th, along with some uh, other idiosyncrasies. For one thing, Bob said to ignore the intermissions because they were messed up. That ROM is still there. This is kind of making me want to download it and try it out just to see how messed up it is. Uh, There were also some color issues with the bottom display of the later bonus items, starting with the Galaxian flagship. This was because of some color limitations in display lists. Um, What that means, I I, I don't know because I'm not a 7800 programmer, but Bob warned that that issue might have to stay as is. On May 12th, Bob posted an updated work-in-progress ROM. Among the fixes were the issue with the monster's behavior, the outline of the Pac-Man logo in the intro screen was changed from pink to blue, the left difficulty switch determined the number of lives you start with, A is 3, B is 5, but for some reason that would only work in emulators, on an actual Atari 7800 you would get 5 lives regardless of how the difficulty switch was set. And uh, the right difficulty switch did something, but Bob only used various emoticons to explain what it did. At this point, Inky's and Pinky's colors were darkened slightly so that they'd look less harsh, and the death animation was changed too. Also, Age user Debro had observed that there were slightly fewer dots in Bob's Pac-Man than in the Arcade Pac-Man. In the Arcade Pac-Man, the bonus prize appears after eating 70 dots, give or take, just like in Bob's version. Debro calculated the ratio of dots in Bob's Pac-Man to the dots in the arcade Pac-Man, and determined that the bonus prize should appear after Pac-Man eats 67 dots. So Bob's work-in-progress ROM that was posted made that change. Half an hour later, Bob actually broke down and said what the right difficulty switch would do, since many emulators start the game with both difficulty switch settings set to A. The right difficulty switch acted thusly. B position, normal Pac-Man maze. A position, new Puck X maze. New Puck X, what's that? It's a hacked version of Pac-Man, and the maze was a slightly altered version of the Pac-Man maze, with extra escape tunnels, and with some of the maze islands altered and even split into multiple parts. A pleasantly surprising side effect was that because of the right difficulty switches behavior, you could actually play with two different mazes in the same game. On May 14th, Bob posted another work in progress, this time with some difficulty switch problems fixed with the help of the late Ken Siders. The work in progress also contained a fix for high-score cartridge functionality. Early in the morning on May 16th, a new work in progress was posted, this time with Bob's first attempt at making Pac-Man's munching sounds and adding a siren. The siren sound was too fast, though, and Bob wasn't happy with the munch sounds, especially because he figured that because he's a musician, he'd have an easier time with sounds. But he did find that he was able to empty a lot of space by removing the intermission music from the second and third intermissions, because in Pac-Man, the same music is used for all three intermissions. Late that night, Bob posted another revised work-in-progress ROM, this time with the siren slowed down a little bit, and the Munch sound updated. The sound would kind of alternate up and down with each dot, trying to mimic the waka sound from the arcade version as closely as possible. The music, both the intro and the intermission music, that is, they were changed to quote-unquote somewhat closely resemble the music of the arcade versions of those tunes, but uh, Bob wasn't really fully happy with it, although he resigned to the fact that it might be the best he could do given the limitations of the 7800's built-in sound capabilities. Bob also made sound changes to the Energizers and Pac-Man's death. Because they would be the most difficult part of the game to work on, Bob was saving finishing the intermissions for last. So on May 17th, the next day, there was another revised work in progress that fixed the high-score cartridge issues. All the sounds were closer to being arcade-accurate, including the sirens speeding up when appropriate. The ready and game over text now appeared in yellow as in the arcade version, except it turns out that the words game over actually appear in red on the arcade version, as Atari Age user Dano pointed out. Bob said he knew somebody was going to point that out, so he explained that he had to use background colors for the game over text, and ergo was limited to blue, yellow, and white. He did mention that in his new work in progress, which he didn't yet post, he had Pac Man start the level with his mouth closed, just like in the arcade game. On May 19th, that new work in progress was actually posted. And uh, in addition to what I talked about just a minute ago, that work in progress also fixed an issue with the key display at the bottom of the screen. Turns out it was only showing six levels worth of keys instead of seven. He also fixed the Galaxian flagship color the only thing left to do? Intermissions. Later that evening, he announced that he got most of the intermissions working. Late at night on May 20th, 2005, Bob posted what he felt would be the final version, barring any further issues found. Over the course of hacking Ms. Pac-Man into Pac-Man, he found that in the original Atari version of Ms. Pac-Man, there was a provision in place for Ms. Pac-Man to slow down as she'd eat the dots, just like in the arcade version but it wasn't actually used, or at least it wasn't used properly. And yes, that is an interesting piece of trivia there. On the Atari-sanctioned GCC program Ms. Pac-Man for the 7800, Ms. Pac-Man does not slow down while eating dots. Unfortunately, though, Bob could not enable the dot slowdown without having to do some major changes to the program's main engine. He also found some issues when trying to make the monsters slow down inside the escape tunnel but in Ms. Pac-Man, there was some kind of code in there to compensate for the lack of a slowdown. But wait, what was that that I said about the dot slowdown? Bob did give it a shot and posted a version of the ROM with a slowdown and asked people to try it out. The slowdown was a tad bit too much, though, some users found. Also, Bob was finding that there were some jerky animation issues when trying to match up Pac-Man's speed to the arcade equivalent. Many users suggested that the arcade speed be sacrificed just to ensure smooth animations. On May 22nd, Bob posted an updated ROM with an attempt at balancing the speed issue and smooth animation. After some discussion, Bob erred on the side of smoothness, with the next updated work-in-progress posted the next day. In fact, later that evening, Bob posted what he called version 1.0, saying, and I quote, Okay guys, this is the final deal. If anyone sees any bugs, let me know. Otherwise, this is pretty much it. On May 24th, Bob posted his attempt at making a manual for the game. For the most part, he just copied the text from the official Atari 5200 Pac-Man manual and formatted it to look like an Atari 7800 manual. It was in Microsoft Publisher format, which Atari Age user VicGeorge2K3 revised and converted to PDF and posted the next day, much to Bob's delight. On May 30th, Bob made a couple of small changes, one to the cherry and another to the monster's eyes, using Atari Age user Bakasama's eye design. So that's the story of the development of the Atari 7800 version of Pac Man, at least as a standalone game. And uh, because Bob is Bob, and because this is called Pac-Man Collection, that kind of implies there's more than one thing going on here. Well, we probably all know that uh, due to Pac-Man's massive popularity, some fly-by-night companies have made their own Pac-Man games by hacking the original and um, kind of of, uh, dubious if just plain non-existent legality have distributed them to arcades and stores and other places. So uh, let's take a look at uh, the ones that made it to Pac-Man Collection. May 4th, 2017. The next piece of Pac-Man Collection I want to talk about is Ultra Pac-Man. And uh, this may sound like a very unusual game. Perhaps some of you may think that Bob even made it up if you don't know the history of the Pac-Man collection. But actually, it's not a made-up game per se, at least not on Bob's part. Ultra Pac-Man is based on a game from a 1999 add-on kit that I believe is still available. You can put it in a Pac-Man or a Ms. Pac-Man cabinet, and it is called Super A.B.C., and uh, it's available online at 2bits.com, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And you can even get MAME ROMs for Super ABC, uh, provided you already legally own the actual cabinet, of course. <clears throat> but um, anyway, Super ABC contains Pac-Man, Ms. Pac-Man, Pac-Attack, which really just looks like it's a copy of Hangley Man, Ms. Pac-Attack, Pac-Man Plus... Ms. Pac Man After Dark, which is um, basically Ms. Pac Man, but the inner walls of the maze are invisible, and the outer maze walls and characters are, and I quote, lit up like a neon sign, according to the marketing literature. And uh, that is, they only render the outline style, they're not solid color. And Super ABC also contains Ultra Pac Man and Piranha. And by the way, Bob said that he did consider doing Piranha, but He felt it was just too difficult because there are no maze walls in it whatsoever, so he didn't bother with it. But anyway, what happens with Super ABC is, I believe off the top of my head, when you are looking at the cabinet, the attract mode is showing you Pac-Man. When you put a coin in, you are presented with a menu with all of those games that I mentioned, and each game has two options, slow and fast. And if you pick fast, it means that your Pac-Man character moves at twice the speed, pretty much like the sped-up Pac-Man, Ms. Pac-Man, and Junior Pac-Man variations that are up there. So you have a lot of varieties from which you can choose. Use the joystick, move up and down, you press the start button when you get the option that you want. What is Ultra Pac-Man? It's a Pac-Man hack. It's yet another Pac-Man hack. And it does have changing mazes with the same frequency that Ms. Pac-Man changes mazes. And there are six different mazes. The first maze is the usual standard Pac-Man maze layout. But instead of blue borders, it has tan borders. So all the islands and stuff, they're all bordered in tan instead of blue. And the monsters have different colors and names and nicknames. There's a gray monster that's named Monster, that's three M's by the way, and Monster's nickname is 99. There's a kind of pale orange monster whose name is Y2K, that's W-H-Y-T-O-O-K-A-Y, and his nickname is 2000. See what they did there? There's a bright green, kind of neon-ish monster whose name is Millennia. And that monster's nickname is 2001. And there is a brown monster whose name is Virus Bug and nicknamed Bang, 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 Bang. And by the way, in case you don't know, like, I don't know how many of you use this terminology, but at least in the hacker world, and the programming world, if somebody says bang, they mean exclamation point. I don't know if that's what 2bits.com intends it to be pronounced, but hey. And there is one extra feature that's worth mentioning. At certain times, there may be a butterfly that appears. And if Pac-Man eats the butterfly, you get a free game credit. Now, as for the Atari 7800 version, I don't believe it was ever released as a standalone cartridge. But the ROM was released on June 19th, 2005 via a post on Atariage. So that way you could load it up into, well, if you were one of the lucky few who had a cuddle cart, you could load it into your cuddle cart. You could play it in an emulator, whatever. One thing, though, Bob did not like the monster's new colors and names, so he didn't carry over the monster colors and the monster names to his 7800 conversion. One thing he did, though, is he coded the mazes in such a way that anybody who was interested could use a tool called hack so that they could design up to 16 different mazes to comprise up to 32 levels. On November 7th, 2005, a user named Lord Helmet posted a mock-up of a potential label, and it was based very much on the Pac-Man Plus arcade marquee. And one thing missing from the 7800 version is the butterfly. Bob didn't see the point of putting in a bonus item whose payload is a free credit. I mean, what's the point? This is a home console game. If you want to play again for free, you just hit the reset button. But he does concede that maybe... Having a huge number of bonus points or something like that could have been one way to do it, but he stands by his decision. And yeah, I know what he's talking about because I believe the ColecoVision version of Mr. Do, for example. In Mr. Do, there is a diamond, and if you get that thing to appear and you hit the diamond, you get a free credit in the arcade version. I think... On the ColecoVision version, if you get the diamond, you get a huge number of bonus points. Something like 64,000 or something. I know in the arcade game, you also get 8,000. But still, Bob decided, you know what? I'm not going to bother with the butterfly. And that is perfectly fine. And uh, that's really all I have to say about Ultra Pac-Man. Hungry Man, it's good to be full. Right! January 27th, 2017. Now, about Hangly Man... Hangly Man is basically a hack of the original Pac-Man arcade game. It started showing up sometime around 1981 when Pac-Man fever was in full swing. Supposedly, the word hangly, or pseudo-word hangly, is uh, supposed to be an English kind of bastardization of the word hungry. English, of course, being a slang term for poorly pronounced words from Japanese to English. Usually what would happen is you would see Hangley Man inside a Pac-Man cabinet, so it would make you think, wait a minute, is this an official Pac-Man game? That's just a slight variation. Of course, it wasn't. And Hangley Man was made by a company called Nitto, N-I-T-T-O-H. Now, the consumer guidebook that I mentioned earlier in the podcast in a segment that was actually recorded after this segment was The Magic of Editing, folks. Nitto is hot tin, spelled backwards. I don't know if that was actually the intention or if that was a real Japanese name that happens to be hot tin, spelled backwards. Now, the difference between Hangly Man and Pac-Man is that some of the mazes are slightly altered, and there are some situations in which when you eat an Energizer, the maze disappears until the Energizer wears off. Now, does that sound familiar? <laughs> oh, yeah, it sounds a little a little bit like uh, something that happens during Pac-Man Plus, does it not? Hmm? Some of the altered mazes have additional tunnels where you can wrap around. There are some mazes that aren't actually mazes at all. They just have the monster pen in the middle and the maze boundary, and then just the dots and energizers kind of arranged in rows and columns, and it's basically a free-for-all. That can be pretty tricky, so be careful with that. Some of the mazes have a vertical tunnel as well, kind of like in the Atari 2600 Pac-Man. And the cool thing about that is that the monsters actually cannot go into the vertical tunnel. There's a quirk about the vertical tunnel, though. If you are going through a vertical tunnel and you move the joystick left or right, then Hangley Man or Pac-Man, whatever, is going to be stuck in that position. As long as you hold the joystick down, Pac-Man will be stuck there, but the good news is you will be free from the monsters. The monsters will not catch you in there. Let the joystick go and you will exit the tunnel. You can't just go into the tunnel, move the joystick left and walk away for 20 minutes. You actually have to hold the joystick in. Other than that, the game itself, Hangly Man is Pac-Man. It has the same sounds, it has the same graphics, except of course for the maze layout and even the same interstitials after you clear every X number of mazes. And there were different versions of Hangley Man as well. There was an older version that had a different alteration of the maze, and that version was released under different titles. Sometimes it was called Puck Man, which actually was the Japanese name for Pac-Man. So if you actually play a Japanese Pac-Man cabinet, the the marquee is going to say Puck Man. Another title it came out under was Scandal. And there was another hack of Hangley Man called Caterpillar Pac Man, and that came out in 1981. I don't know if the name of the company who produced it was called Phi or Phi, but it's P H I. And in that game, instead of Pac Man, you are a caterpillar and you are being chased by four spiders. And there was another version in which Hangley Man was replaced with a Popeye head and being pursued by four olive oils, and uh, that version is actually mentioned briefly in the Consumer Guidebook as well. Now, this so-called Popeye Pac-Man variation, um, as far as I know, this is not part of Pac-Man collection, unless there's an Easter egg I don't know about. There are homebrew Hangley Man games for some Atari consoles as well. Um, including the Atari 2600 and 5200, and they tend to be hacks of the official licensed Pac-Man games. Now, as for the Atari 7800 version of Hangley Man, it kind of appeared by surprise on May 30th, 2005, as a predecessor to Bob's Pac-Man Plus homebrew. The original binary that was posted used the maze design from New Puck X, which is yet another bootleg Pac-Man hack that showed up in arcades. May 31st, 522 AM, Bob found a bug in the demo mode on the third screen, so he cut the third screen out of the demo mode, and he replaced the Pac-Man logo with Hangley Man in plain text, except that instead of a Y in Hangly, a V rendered. Hmm. He also made a tweak so that Hangly Man would work on the high scorecard. Twelve hours later, he posted a new ROM that corrected the spelling of Hangley. Wait, would that, since Hangley is a, uh, not even the right word, does that count as a right spell? Ah, uh, let's not get into semantics, but on June tw- but on June 2nd, Bob confirmed that his next project was Pac-Man Plus. And, uh, short but sweet, that's pretty much all there was to it, at least publicly, on the development of Hangley Man for the 7800. And since this was a stepping stone toward Pac-Man Plus, let's talk about that game. But to do that, Studio Sean has to leave you and turn things over to Traveling Sean. Take it, Traveling Sean. March 4th, 2017. I am at the Shell Station in East Dundee, Illinois, about to get a car wash. So, um, figured, hey, while I'm waiting for my car to go through the little brushes and things, I might as well record part of this episode. So, let me pay for this here. Please, yeah. please, will we verify your membership? Oh, sure. Please, select the logo is the this. Oh, it says processing. Don't you just love these things? Um, oh, got a receipt. And that was quick. You are now ready. Yeah. so figured now would be a good time to talk about Pac-Man Plus. Uh, Ah, Pac-Man Plus. Oh, I mean exciting new Pac-Man Plus. Bally Midway advertised it as the new official factory authorized enhancement kit. And the flyer that had that headline also proclaimed the only legal Pac-Man conversion package. You can't see this because this is an audio podcast, but right now I'm doing a stretching gesture with my arm because, yeah, that's uh, kind of a stretch Um, Now, I never saw any contracts between Namco and Midway with my own eyes, but I'm guessing Pac-Man Plus is technically a legal conversion package The verbiage from Midway undoubtedly alerting arcade managers against other Pac-Man clones of dubious legality and Midway is forgetting, of course about its own prior legal conversion kit called Ms. Pac-Man, wouldn't you know it? New official factory-authorized Pac-Man enhancement kit? Well, maybe authorized by the factory in Chicago, but certainly not by the factory in Japan. But the point is, this is the second Pac-Man game that Bally Midway released that was not authorized by Namco and still before the release of Super Pac-Man. The first actual Pac-Man sequel or spinoff that Namco not only sanctioned but also created but really, can you blame Midway? I mean, Ms. Pac Man, the most recent Pac Man game, was released in January of 1981 after Namco had assured Midway that a sequel was already in the works. And of course, that sequel would end up being Super Pac Man. Okay, car wash is done, so now I gotta talk and drive at the same time, which I can do. I'm hands free, so yeah, this car has been in pretty dirty condition for quite a while. Ooh, free opening. Woohoo! But anyway, Namco had assured Midway that there was a forthcoming sequel. And that sequel, of course, would be Super Pac-Man. But Midway has been waiting for how long for a sequel to happen. Let me put it to you this way. Pac-Man Plus was released on March 13th, 1982, well over a year after the January 1981 release of Ms. Pac-Man. And Super Pac-Man was still nowhere to be found and would not be released in North America for another six and a half months. That's a long time. Remember, Pac-Man was released at the end of October 1980. Now, do the math. You're going between October of 1980 and January 1981. And in those two, what is that? See, um, that's three months. That's three months. And in those three months, there was already a noticeable downturn, I guess, in the Pac-Man craze. People were getting tired of Pac-Man. Look at how quickly people were getting antsy. Just two months before Midway was prompted to put out a Pac-Man sequel because, well, Namco was taking their sweet time in doing so. Now imagine if Midway had just sat back and waited for that sequel. October 1980 was when the first one came out. And if Midway had waited two years, wow, that is a freaking eternity in video games. That's an eternity in technology nowadays. Just imagine how much of an eternity that was back in the early 80s, you know? So think about this. October 1982, what happened shortly after that? Well, the North American video game crash happened. Certainly, Midway would have suffered greatly had no Pac-Man sequels come out since the original Pac-Man. But... Let's talk about the actual Pac-Man Plus game. It's basically a more challenging version of Pac-Man. All the original Pac-Man characters are there. There aren't any real new ones. It's the same maze, the same layout, the same escape tunnels and everything, except the maze is now kind of a teal um, aqua color, if you will, as opposed to, say, the blue maze from the original Pac-Man. The mazes didn't change at all, so it's basically still the same thing, unlike Ms. Pac-Man, where the mazes did change every so often. You still had dots to eat that are worth 10 points each, energizers that are worth 50 points, and monsters that are worth 200 $400, i am sorry, 800 and 1600 each. So the gameplay is pretty much the same. The exact same goal, the exact same everything, but you know what? We actually get to see some differences, some challenges. The gameplay is noticeably faster. And um, a little bit different is when you eat a Energizer and the monsters are vulnerable to you, they now have little stems or antennas or something. Well, I think they're like some kind of stem because they have a leaf on them. But the monsters grow stems when they're vulnerable to you and when they flash blue and blue and white. But in addition to that, there's also a little challenge thrown in. Not every time you eat an Energizer are all four monsters vulnerable to you. There might be times when only three of them turn blue, and you don't know which one it might be that stays whatever its original color is. Could be the one most nearest you to the Energizer. So there's a big challenge right there, and that basically disables any possible pre-planned patterns that you have. Also there are different bonus items, and they're still worth the same numbers of points. Uh, 100, 300, 500, 700, 1000, 2000, 3000, and of course 5000. And when you eat these bonus items, not only do you get those bonus points, but the monsters also turn vulnerable for a short time, so you get to eat them again, and for double the point values. 400, 800, 1,600, and 3,200 points. But to throw in a little extra challenge, the monsters may turn invisible, or something else might happen. The maze walls might turn invisible. Sometimes the dots left in the maze will also turn invisible. And by the way, this can also happen when you eat an Energizer. And as for those new bonus prizes, well, there's a can of Coca-Cola. Well, it's a can of soda, but it looks dangerously like a can of Coke. The next bonus prize is a um, mysterious purple drink with a lemon on it. Uh, I'm not very cocktail literate. Uh, I'm, I pretty much just have, like, mojitos and stuff, so I'm not quite sure what that drink is supposed to be. And there is a bonus prize after that that, um, well, I don't know what in the world the thing's supposed to be. Could be a garlic clove, could be a peapod, could be a jalapeno. I just don't know. But whatever it is, it's worth 500 points. And the 700-point prize is still the apple from the original Pac-Man. And then the next prize, the 1,000-point prize, is a bunch of grapes. And then after that, the next bonus prize is the Galaxian flagship also returning from the original Pac-Man. Then after that, there's a half loaf of bread, and then the last bonus prize is a short stack of pancakes. And as in the original Pac-Man, the bonus prizes stay put under the monster's hideout in the middle of the screen. And of course, a few minutes ago I said that the gameplay in Pac-Man Plus is faster than that in Pac-Man. You might not notice it when you first play it, but if you play Pac-Man Plus for a while and then immediately go to a standard Pac-Man, you will notice the difference, believe me. Now, partly because Pac-Man Plus is so similar to Pac-Man, and partly because it wasn't terribly common, and of course that Pac-Man Plus was not authorized by Namco, there were very, very few home versions of Pac-Man Plus released, and really only on modern systems, such as those on uh, those, uh, you know those Jack-specific plug-and-play thingies? Well, Pac-Man Plus appeared on uh, one or two of those, and... If anything else, they appeared on, like, like Midway's best-of compilations that you could get for your smartphone or for your PC or or modern gaming console like Xbox or something. Uh, Basically, they're emulated versions. Of course, there have been homebrew versions for various systems, including the Atari 2600, which I believe was just a graphics hack, really, and our beloved 7800 as part of Pac-Man Collection. Duh. Personally, I think Pac-Man Plus itself is... uh, Well, it's a pretty sorry excuse for a new Pac-Man game, quite frankly. In my opinion, it was sloppily executed, really. I don't know much about programming the Z80 processor that powers the game, but I'm guessing based on the tweaks that they made to Pac-Man to create Pac-Man Plus, it probably amounted to maybe two days' work, really. If that. Just a matter of maybe playing with some variables here and there. However, Pac-Man Plus does have its fans. I know several people who say it's their favorite Pac-Man variation. But despite my nay-saying about Pac-Man Plus, I really don't like it all that much. Um, the Atari 7800 version, however, is fantastic in terms of homebrew. If you like Pac-Man Plus in the arcade, believe me, you are going to like it on Pac-Man Collection. But there is one thing I have to admit. The Pac-Man Plus arcade marquee is really, really nice. It's probably the best of all the marquees. But having said that, I have now reached my destination of Underground Retrocade, so I'm going to turn it back to Original Sean back in the podcast lounge. Love, exciting and new. Come aboard. March 11, 2017. So let's talk about the Atari 7800 version of Pac-Man Plus. It originally was a standalone game that was first produced around 2005, give or take. On June 5th, 2005, Bob DiCrescenzo posted a playable ROM file of Pac-Man Plus, and on April 14th, 2006, almost a year later, he posted a PDF version of the manual. If I'm not mistaken, the version released as part of Pac-Man Collection was pretty much the same but with some sound enhancements and possibly some graphics enhancements. Some cartridges were actually produced of the standalone version. In fact, if you heard episode zero of this podcast, you heard me mention how my Pie Factory podcast co-host Jimmy G actually has one of those standalones. Uh, His is in a clear cart, if I'm not mistaken. Looks really cool. In 2006, uh, Jimmy G lost his job, and because Bob is a nice guy, and believe me, he absolutely is one of the nicest people you'll encounter out there but he sent Jim a copy of Pac-Man Plus, basically as kind of a cheer-up gift, I guess, uh, and it really did help his morale. Pac-Man Plus on the Atari 7800 is a very faithful copy of the arcade version, with all the features that I have mentioned so far. And not only that, but you can use Plus Mode with all those extra features on any of the variants of Pac-Man on Pac-Man Collection including not just Pac-Man, but also Ultra Pac-Man, Hangly Man, Random Mazes, and even Ms. Pac-Man. In fact, there was a bootleg arcade game called Ms. Pac-Man Plus, which was basically Ms. Pac-Man with new mazes and all the plus features of Pac-Man Plus. If I'm not mistaken, Bob actually incorporated those mazes from the bootleg Ms. Pac-Man Plus into Pac-Man Collection. Because the arcade version of Pac-Man Plus starts at the same speed as the Apple level in the original version, Bob's 7800 version of Pac-Man Plus does the same. The Player 1 difficulty switch allows you to choose between 3 and 5 lives. The Player 2 difficulty switch allows you to choose between the usual Pac-Man Plus maze or a more challenging maze with more escape tunnels. And as for the highest scores I could find... Well, the highest one I could find for Pac-Man Plus with default settings was achieved by Wilson Oyama during the Atari Age 7800 High Score Club's Pac-Man Challenge of Thanksgiving 2011. Wilson scored 175,890 default settings Pac-Man Plus, and I believe that was on an emulator. As for the official Twin Galaxies world record... Twin Galaxies shows a world record for Pac-Man Plus Fast Mode from specifically Pac-Man Collection, um, and some boob named Sean Courtney holds that record with a score of 265,840 verified May 12th, 2016. June 25th, 2018 and you know what? That's enough of an episode for today. So that's uh, end of Part 1 of Pac-Man Collection. And uh, obviously, we are going to do Part 2 next time. And uh, should you be interested in submitting some feedback for that, uh, well, you can tweet me at homebrew78, or you can email me at homebrew eight at fab4it.com and that's F-A-B, and then the number four, and then it.com, like so many of you have over the past 38 or so episodes. You can send me text, you can send me audio. In the meantime, you can check out the show notes on the web in your favorite web browser at homebrew78.fab4it.com. Hopefully I'll have some videos up on the YouTube channel, Homebrew 7800. Realistically, I don't know if I will because I'm kind of bad at keeping up with that. I apologize to everybody. But I don't apologize to the following people. In fact, I thank them very much. Thank you, Air Shack, Ed and Controllers, Kyle Etter, Jimmy G, Great Offender, Richard Grounds, PJ Steele, and Richard Valdez. Thank you all for supporting this podcast monetarily. And if you wish to do the same you can go to patreon.com slash homebrew78 Patreon being spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N and uh, hey, what more can I say? Thank you everybody for for listening and uh, hope you listen again next time in which we cover uh, more Pac-Man collection. Happy chomping.